My name is Nick Wagner Sr. and I am the founder of the Full Potential Movement. So welcome everyone. This is Nick Wagner Sr. and I am thrilled to be here on this Sunday night at 8 o'clock with Dr. Michelle Dropkin. So Michelle, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, it's super happy to be here. And and I, like I say every 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 week, so we are recording this live on LinkedIn, which is super fun because we have video now and it's it's a lot different from the podcast. Now I have to make sure that my hair looks nice and I'm you know, in a nice shirt and everything. So it's a little bit different from the podcast, but we will release this on YouTube as the video. So anyone watching this is the recording on YouTube. Thank you. And then we will release this, Michelle, on all the major podcast platforms. So it'll be on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, you name it, it'll be there. And we will make sure for everyone listening that we link to the contact information to get in touch with Michelle. So Michelle, we'll, we'll link to whatever website you want us to link to. Um, awesome. In case someone wants to get in touch with you about any of the variety of things you've done throughout <laughs> your awesome career, which we will, we will dive into. So, uh, so why don't we why don't we we jump into it? So, you are uh, you you know we met here through LinkedIn. So, um, which is funny. People always ask that, how do I meet people, and I believe you're someone you know, and I can't remember who it was. Used to work uh, at the company I worked at at Cigna. Yep. And that's how we got connected through LinkedIn. And then, you know, we started following each other and what we were doing. And you had a really cool story. You thought I had a cool story and, and we've connected and, and um, had multiple conversations since. So I appreciate you making time tonight because you are obviously a very busy person as you sit in your uh, your own private practice uh, in New Jersey. So why don't you share with the, the listeners, um, you know, first of all, you're a doctor. So, you know, what does that mean? Like, so you're Dr. Japkin. What are you a doctor in? What, you know, what do you do? Um, I think uh, as we were preparing for this, I said to you that I think a lot of people have a, um, when you tell people you're a clinical psychologist, I think people have a thought in their head of what that means. But I think you've done a lot of different things. So if you want to share with, with the audience what you've done and who you are a little bit about yourself before we jump into the very difficult difficult topic of behavior change, uh, I want people to know who you are first. Sure. Um, I'll give you a very high level. Um, and then I'm I'm always happy. So I, I think you and I um, bonded sort of a, we're, we're kind of a natural born mentors. And so, I, so I'll just put that out there that um, I'm always happy to talk with anyone more in depth about a career in psychology, because um, there's lots of different pathways. So I have my PhD in clinical psychology from Rutgers. Um, here in New Jersey, and I'm pretty proud of that if you're a big Rutgers fan. Um, are you rah rah? Um, and so, what that means is I'm so there are lots of different degrees for psychology, but I'm a PhD by, by choice because I'm a scientist at heart and I really believe in the science of psychology and really knowing um, how to um, produce psychological science and also apply and interpret it. Um, and I've utilized that in various ways in my career. Um, and so I've worked across um, pretty much almost every setting a clinical psychologist can work. Um, I started my career at University of Pennsylvania on faculty where I was a traditional, um, you know, research professor there. Um, and then really decided I wanted to do more applied work um, and took a national position in the Department of Veterans Affairs, where I designed and led a national training program, which was pretty cool. And that will relate to some of what we'll talk about tonight. Um, you know, and then from there, I spent I went back to Rutgers for a little bit and was a director of training because, um, again, I'm really passionate about, you know, helping our future clinicians um, come up and learn how to do really good work. Um, and that was during that time is when I met um, folks at Johnson and Johnson and learned a lot about what that really what they were doing there and um, 
Health and Wellness Solutions, which is one of the operating companies at J&J, um, and became a behavior scientist there where I really got to take all of my knowledge and help um, apply to design behavioral interventions, mostly technology. Um, and then most recently, I was able to apply that with, um, in a startup out of San Francisco. Um, and in the background of all of that, um, I, um, you know, built my clinical practice. And so for me, you know, people, I, I think you and I also have this in common where, you know, our hobbies are things that people think are kind of funny because my hobby forever was my Saturday morning private practice. Um, you know, and my husband helped me build the practice, um, you know, and it's something I've always been really passionate about and, um, and doing also some consulting and training work. Um, so my, I've always, much like you, have worn, um, gosh, like three to four hats at a time on top of being um, a wife and I have a daughter and I have three schnauzers. Um, so <laughs> a lot going on. So, no, and I appreciate you, you sharing that. It's, it, it, you have a very diverse background. So, again, I think pe when people think clinical psychologist, they probably don't realize the breadth of different things you can do with, you know, with a degree in that field. Um, you obviously, I think, I think your private practice and helping people individually one-on-one -on -one is probably immediately where, where people think of clinical psychologists. Yeah. Um, because I think that's just kind of how people uh, are probably most familiar with, with the, with the, you know, your, your profession. How is it, how different was it going from um, academia to, you know, a fortune 50 company in J and J to a startup to working for yourself. I mean, you, 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 those are just different experiences that a lot of people don't get a chance to work in those four dramatically different environments in their career. And you've done all of that in not a lot of, not a lot of time. Right. I mean, you think about, it, I mean, you're, you're still relatively young in your career and you've had a chance to do that. So you know, can you just share a little bit about what, what did you maybe love about some of those versus not like versus maybe meh, it wasn't as, it wasn't really what you thought it would be. Yeah. And I mean, let's not also not forget that I've worked in the federal government and state government. So right. I, I really hit like almost every, <laughs> every industry. Um, and I, I can tell you that there are pros and cons to all of it. Um, and part of why I wanted to get my PhD and to be able to do research and science was to be able to help people at scale. Right. So I knew implicitly that the one on one work that I do in my practice was was going to be great. And I was going to love that. But I want, oh, and I still, I always want to help more people. Right. Um, it's part of why I'm sitting here with you on a Sunday night is I, you know, I hope that maybe this, you know, inspires people to think about psychology different or, um, you know, to think about change different, which is what we'll talk about. Um, and so I got to do that in a variety of different ways. And I think it's just all how it came to life. So working in the VA was like beyond rewarding, right? I, I've never served our country, but to be able to serve and create and disseminate treatments that really help our veterans um, was was awesome. And that impact is still going. So like the ripple effect of implementing treatments was awesome. Um, and being on faculty, you know, was amazing, except I figured out that not everyone reads what you write, right? So I'm published. Yeah. And, um, I think the only people who read, you know, journal articles often are our competitors who want to read them to tear them up or, you know, or not, you know, it's, it's not, it was not the world that I believed it to be. And so J and J and being at a startup was really the ultimate for, of that for me of being in a space. I mean, J and J's reach in particular, um, you know, being in a space where you could really help individuals globally was, was super rewarding and with a lot of resources. Right. And so I still think, um, and being in the tech field and, that was 
that it wasn't is really where I think that a lot of the future potential will be. And so having all of those different um, avenues to be able to help people, like when you think about that ripple effect, but here's the thing and why I have my practice is because as it ripples out, I never want to forget about the individuals who are right. at yeah. like off the ground. Um, and so I still like, I catch myself thinking like I was feeling bad for people who were working on New Year's Eve. Um, and I realized that I had seen three patients and I was like, I, you know, I was working, but it didn't feel like work because it's, it's just so rewarding and I enjoy my patients so much and they're, you know, and I do really good work. So it's not like I take it really seriously, but it's, it's taking, and it, so it's like the scaling out and bringing it back in and always having that like full continuum of helping people change. No, I, I really, I really like that. So, so the whole, the whole being a clinical psychologist is this, I love to ask this question to all my guests. Is this something you wanted to do since you were a little kid? Is this, did you have an epiphany in high school? Were you in college and, you know, you met someone and you're like, oh my gosh, I want to do that. You know, how did, how did that happen? Because it seems like everyone has a different story on how they ended up doing what they're doing. Yeah. So it's, so what's interesting is I, I didn't always want to be this. I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, and I figured out that I loved animals so much that I couldn't see them be harmed. That was too yeah. emotional for me. Um, and so then I figured out, well, I want to be a psychologist. And actually, to be honest, Nick, I was dissuaded from being a psychologist. People told me I was too smart. Like you can do so much more with your life. And I was like, but this is what I wanted. This is what I want to do. And then I was really, really lucky. So I, I'm a first generation college student. Um, so my brother, which is who, how we met, um, and I are the first in our families to go to college. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of kind of mentorship going through, but I was lucky to land at a really small college called Franklin and Marshall College, which I, I attribute to a lot of my success because my mentors there and my professors there and the approach that they had to psychology there introduced me to psychology as a science and not just this soft thing that a lot of people do think about, oh, you just sit and you talk, right? Like it's, yes, I talk and I do so much more and it's so complicated and there's a huge like scientific theoretical background that's driving the talking I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and so that's how I got really excited about the science of psychology and wanting to be a PhD and then um, figuring out and then just having other great opportunities. I was able to work at Penn for a couple of years between undergrad and grad. And that's really what launched me into kind of more high level um, research. No, I find, I find it really interesting. The, the as you mentioned, the, the ability to impact a, one individual in a one-on-one -on -one setting, and then the ability to impact, you know, hundreds or thousands of people when you put a program together, like you did at the VA. I, I like, I like how you explained that and how I could see how both are rewarding in, in different ways. So that's, that's really cool. Uh, and, and and I appreciate you you sharing about um, the the mentor as well because I think that's something that as I've interviewed people for the you know past year and a half on this show, the, the idea of a of a mentor has come up time and time and time again, and and just how important that is for so many people being successful. So um, mm -hmm. I appreciate you sharing that. So let's let's pivot. So I wanted people to hear about who you are, um, just so they can really understand you know your experience and and your your knowledge around this topic. So. We're going to talk about effective communication around behavior change. So I think the first thing I want to def define for the audience is when you talk about behavior change, right? What, what does that mean? You know, because I think, I think that's probably something else. That I think some people think of behavior change as one thing and some think of it as others. So how do you want to define behavior change for our discussion tonight? 
So generally when, when we're working on behavior change, it's, it's actually a very specific behavior, right? So if you say, um, I want to feel better, I'm going to ask you, well, what would that look like, right? What behaviors would you be doing that would tell us that you're feeling better? Um, because otherwise it's completely amorphous and you don't. So again, I'm a scientist, right? So you'll see that even in my clinical work, we're always tracking how someone's doing. And so it's what behaviors are changing and are we really moving the needle in a way that we want to move it? Um, so it's very tactical. Um, you know, it's thinking very much of like, oh, well, I'm so exhausted. I want to sleep. I want to sleep better. Okay, great. What does that look like? Are we talking about quantity of sleep, quality of sleep? And then how do we track all of those things? So what we're driving um, the, the behavior change is really clear. So, so the measure, the measuring of it is, is really important. And it's probably, I'm going to guess that's something that I'm going to, I'm going to guess that that's something that is not always done when people are trying to make behavior changes, the measurement. Oh, like, like almost never. Right. So it, um, if anybody's watching this and you've been in therapy, like I would, I would want to know, is your clinician actually tracking behavior change? And, and I'll tell you that I think this is, this is going to change our field. Right. So like thinking about the industry you work in, right. Like I think there's going to be a lot more accountability for clinicians, psychologists, social workers, um, mental health, because in the same way that there's always been. So if a doctor is treating someone for diabetes, they're not just like, Oh, you look better. Like, oh, you feel better. Yeah. No, we're actually checking physiological changes, and we can do. There are similar things that we can do in psychology and therapy to be able to to see our, how are we moving the needle needle and pivot treatment based on that too. That's the piece of what we call measurement based care that we're measuring and we're changing. Um, but that relates to like what what is a behavior change, right? And like, what are you really and defining the goals like pretty clearly? Is, is And you mentioned earlier how technology, you think it's going to keep playing a bigger, bigger part in what what clinical psychologists do. Do you think technology is going to play a bigger part in the measurement of it as well and how we actually track this type of stuff? 100%. As soon as we figure out the privacy stuff, because that's a big, right, right. That's a big deal. Like when I was at J&J, it was like, oh, we, you know, I worked on a really amazing team with like fantastic world-class behavior scientists. Um, and we would have amazing ideas to change the world, but there'd all be all of these different hurdles, including privacy, right? Like how much data can you really like collect um, and share, right? And so it's, yeah. um, and I, I think the idea between the more passive data we can collect, so the more data, like if any of you have a, um, a Fitbit or I have an Apple Watch, right? So the more data that we can collect passively to help drive um, interventions and help individualize and personalize them, the better off um, we'll be. And I think that's where technology can come in because clinicians, um, so there's, you know, there's a famous research study where looking at clinicians um, assessing how well a patient's doing compared to like an algorithm. And the algorithm beats the clinician every time because it's data driven, right? It's not a human who's fallible tracking a human. And that goes the same for you tracking yourself, right? Like I'm going to be biased in how I'm reporting how well yeah. I'm doing. Um, and actually, I think that's one of the skills that highly trained psychologists do have is the ability to ask really like pointed questions, but it's still limited. And so I think technology will help really capture some more of that data. And then you'll start to see, um, I mean, that's a lot of what's happening right now in machine learning and AI of really trying to collect as much data to be able to drive um, interventions. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's just interesting to me how technology 
it touches so many different fields. Um, you know, no matter no matter what it is, right? It's from health to retail to you name it. Technology is changing right. things, and I just always find it interesting. You know, that's a great example of how it's going to affect your field as well. So, so why don't we why don't we jump into the actual idea of of making a behavior change? So, um, I know we 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 talked about this, and I think one thing I want to ask before we jump into it is because I think people often often this is a common question. How long does it take, take to change a behavior? Is this like I sit down with someone like you once or three times or five times and my behavior's changed? Or is this a, a six month to a year process? Like, or does it kind of vary? Um, so, you know, the short answer is it varies. Um, and, and I'll tell you that it, it, it varies a lot. Um, so my practice is called the CBT Center of Central Jersey because it's based on cognitive behavioral therapy, which is evidence-based. And and depending on which behaviors we're talking about changing is most likely going to, to change and lead to sustainable behavior change as opposed to other interventions, which might not, which might take longer and also might not sustain the change as well. Right. So thinking about the, those things and the short answer is it really it depends on a lot of things. It depends how motivated you are. So that's where my area of expertise is really helping draw out motivation and help And that. That really sets the roots down and the legs to really help you come back to that motivation and your values over and over again, even when you falter from the kind of uh, superficial behavior change. Um, but it depends. Some behavior changes are really, really hard and others are quite simple. Um, so for example, like if you, depending on which anxiety disorder, but if you have um, you know, various anxiety disorders, you may only need a, like a few sessions of CBT. I mean, we're talking maybe 12. Um, and you, if you're following the protocol, you're doing all of your homework, you're doing everything right, you know, in, you know, 12 weeks, maybe 20 weeks, you're, you're going to be doing great and off and running with, and now you have the skills to be able to change that, like to come back, even if you falter. Um, that's what I love about CBT and behavior change in general that if you do that in a sustainable way, um, but not everyone does that. So kind of be on the lookout. Got it. Okay. All right. So how do, how do we, how do we, uh, how do we start the process? Right. So how do you want to start this conversation around behavior change? And we're yeah. going to use, the fun thing is for all my, all the listeners, we're going to use me as the Guinea pig uh, live on LinkedIn. And, and, and for those of you uh, listening <laughs> to the recording, you'll get to kind of hear Michelle go through, Again, this not that this is you know like what you would do. Um, it's to your point. It takes a long time, but we're going to kind of kick it off tonight, if you will, and, and share what it would look like. So we're going to give you a taste of a behavior change conversation. Um, and so Nick has been willing to kind of put himself out there a little bit, and I'm going to walk him through, and then I can talk you through some of the highlights of what components were in there and to help think through behavior change in your particular setting, which by the way, like, it's not like I'm a clinician, I'm sitting in my private practice. Um, I don't just have these conversations in my private practice. I have these conversations in work settings. I have these conversations at home with my daughter, um, you know, and so it's, it's really just the basic principles. And so we'll, we'll give you a little bit of a taste with Nick and then I'll, we can kind of back up and, and talk about the ingredients that were in there, if that makes sense. Sounds good. All right, so do you, do you mind me taking sort of a control? No, go for it. Um, not of the technology, because that I would probably not. I, I don't know your platform. <laughs> um, 
So can you tell us a little bit about what behavior change you're thinking of making so that we, we can let the audience know? Yeah. So, so when you asked me this and you were like, what, what, what do you, what do you want to change? And I, I, I knew immediately what it was because it's something that I get. And I think one thing we want to talk about this is, is the way when you talk about behavior change, this could apply to both work and home. So I try to think of something that would apply in both places. And for those of you that know the Clifton Strengths Assessment, I've done that. You get your your 34 strengths ranked. Empathy is 29 out of 34 uh, for me. And I often hear at home, I need to be more empathetic uh, from my wife. And I often hear at work that sometimes I need to be more empathetic with my coworkers if they're not maybe understanding something or they're not having the same, um, that maybe they're having the same uh, effect on a client that I'm having, or you know, the same experience, or maybe they're not just having, maybe they're not having the same success I'm having. That I need to be more empathetic with my my coworkers at work as well. So, so for me, it's definitely how to be more empathetic. Okay, cool. So, tell me, what do you think that? What does that mean to you, first of all? So, when you're thinking, like, how would we know that you got more empathic or empathetic? What, how would we know that that changed? Like, what would what would those behaviors look like? So, so good question, and I know you want to measure it. So, I, I, I mean, I, what I would probably say is, it probably, it would probably decrease the number of times um, something happens, and you know, someone gets upset, right, or someone doesn't understand how something happens, and I don't get frustrated with them, and I don't maybe say something that upsets them or offends them, but instead. I can somehow better, I, I mean, I don't know the exact words, but I somehow better understand what they're going through and maybe I can say something to help them rather than maybe frustrate them. And, okay. and you know, I, I use my wife as an example because I hear a lot, a lot with her. If something happens to her, maybe at her job and I kind of just don't even really, I kind of just brush it off. Like, well, yeah, you're, you're fine, right? You, you'll figure it out, um, which is probably what, doesn't what, not what she wants to hear. Um, so I guess maybe just, I think people would probably respond better if I was more empathetic is probably how I would measure it. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get back there later, but like, so thinking, I think we could probably parse it out, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time. Um, but so tell me why, why is this important to you? Why would you want, so, I mean, you gave me a lot of like other people, but tell me about like, why would you want to make this change? Why is it important to you? So I think, well, I think, I mean, I, I we talked about this earlier, um, was we've gotten to know each other. I have a family, so I have a wife, I have three kids, little kids. And I think being more empathetic will help in my relationship with my wife, with my kids. I think, uh, I don't have direct reports at work right now, but I, I hope to again in the future I did in my last role. I think, I think being more empathetic would also help me manage a team better uh, mm -hmm. of people. Um, and I think the, the lastly, you know, I have a nonprofit and, you know, stuff like what I'm doing now is part of my nonprofit and I love helping people, but I feel that if I was more empathetic, I might actually be able to even have a, have a, like a, a bigger impact on, on, on community, my, my community and, mm -hmm. and, and people as a whole. Um, if I better understood how people felt, um, felt or, you know, um, we're acting in a situation, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I mean, it's not, it sounds like it's getting in the way of a lot of things that are really important to you, your family. Like you really enjoy work and you like to connect with your coworkers. And, and you know, even if you're not 
supervising someone, you have influence, you have relationships, and that's really important. Absolutely. And then the nonprofit, which we all know you give a ton to of yourself and you feel like, well, maybe it's this, this, the way I'm interacting with other people actually is sort of counterproductive. And it's, um, and it's funny. I'll say this. I think I, I, um, I kind of compensate for not having the empathy. I have, I, I'm really, I have, I have a lot of strength in like positivity and, mm-hmm. um, I have one other one is woo winning over others. So I have a lot of influencing strengths. Uh-huh. So I think I think I compensate for the lack of empathy by using my influencing strengths. But I think sometimes, and you'll laugh when I say this, um, I think you can. I think I can almost come off as um, not really genuine at times because yeah. because it's yeah. it sounds more influencing and not empathy. Not empathy. Okay, that that's really insightful. So you've really thought about this a lot. And um, so what what have you tried, or how how do you think you could? make this happen? Like what is kind of run through your head or, and to, to be successful at it. So what have you, what have you thought about? I think, yeah. I think the biggest thing for me, and it's funny as I've gotten older, I think about, I think I've gotten better at this. I think I sometimes just need to slow down and listen more. I okay. feel sometimes if I could listen to, listen to what's going on in the situation and try to try to think to myself, okay, Nick, if you, if this was you, how would you feel? Right. Or, you know, hmm. what, what would this be like if, if the situation was something you had to deal with? I feel like that would make a difference. I don't know. You're the expert. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm <laughs> going on the wrong path here, but that, that's kind of how I thought it could be helpful. Well, so one thing that you've thought about is really kind of um, almost being like more mindful and present and having like a meta cognitive awareness, right. Of really thinking about it. What, what else have you noodled over or tried to be more em- empathetic or empathic? Um, um, so not, not jumping, not jumping to conclusions when someone tells me something. So what do I mean by that? I mean, if someone tells me that they have a situation and it didn't go well, I don't try not to jump to the conclusion. Well, you probably just didn't work hard enough or try hard enough to solve the problem or do what you needed to do. Right. So not jump to that conclusion that they just maybe weren't trying or they didn't Mm -hmm. know what they were doing. You know, maybe there's trying to pause myself and say, well, maybe there's another reason it happened. Right. So Mm -hmm. uh, I've been trying to get really good at that at work. And I've, I've used this example with people. If someone's not doing well at work, but they used to do well. Like no, most people don't wake up in the morning and say, I want to go to work and not be good today. Right. So try to think to think to myself, well, what could be happening outside of work that's affecting them at work? Right. What, what are those external factors that might be affecting their job at work? Because we know if something's going on at home. It's going to affect how you act at work. Right. So, and how you perform. So I've been trying to just be more cognizant of, of, of thinking and pausing um, and thinking what could be going on. Cool. So you've already done some thinking and some trying out. Um, so tell me this on a scale from zero to 10, where zero is not at all. Um, and 10 is it couldn't be more important. How important is it for you to make this change, to be more empathic and to really live into this, these behaviors that you're talking about? So I would say probably like a nine. And I think we talked about this. I, uh, I recently, got set up with a coach at work, like a, an actual certified coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what, this will be one of the things I will talk with that coach about. I haven't yet, but I plan to. So this, I guess this is kind of like a me kind of getting some insight before I do it with a coach it's talking with you. And I know obviously you're in a very 
you have you take you go about this a very different way from a coach would but um it is it is important to me so because i think honestly i think it'll help it'll help both personally and my career if i can be more empathetic okay so it sounds like um so yeah, nine, i would say nine out of ten yeah it's i mean that that feels like it's it's pretty high, right? And so I usually ask the follow-up question of like, why nine and not, you know, a four or a five? Like, why why is it that high? Like, that's pretty high. Well, I think, so I've always been the type of person that likes leading people and I love people and I love being with people. And I actually think I will be, and when I say leading people, right? That could be leading my kids, right? And, and, and helping my kids be great people, right? That could be, help leading my nonprofit that could be leading a team at work. I think if I'm, if I can, and I don't think I'm ever going to be a, uh, an empathy guru, but if I can just become like this month, this percentage better at being empathetic, I think it'll be, make me that much better of a leader and that much more just successful in everything I'm doing. Okay. Um, so let me, let me pull this all together and see if I, I got it right. So I've been listening to you and really, um, you, you have, you've thought a lot about this. You, you put a lot of thought into it. You already even have it kind of on the agenda to talk with your coach about. It's really, it's, it's very up there. Um, it, because not being empathic or lacking in empathy, which you've gotten some feedback on has really gotten in the way, you know, across all the domains that are important to you. So work, family, you're getting some feedback at home. Um, and even with your nonprofit feeling like you can't, you know, you're not living into the values in the way that like you really want to. In fact, you feel disingenuous a little bit because you're, you know, you're leaning into your woo and your influence and your positivity and not um, really listening um, and reflecting as much as you wish you you could. Yeah, and so, I, I would agree with all that. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, I mean, it's cool because you've already even thought about a couple ways that you could do it, like slowing down and listening, um, really being more present, um, thinking about like before you jump to a conclusion or catching yourself jumping to a conclusion, which, you know, we're still going to jump to conclusions, but catching yourself and reining it back and thinking through. Um, so you've already done a lot of the really good work. And so I guess the question is like, if you think about over like the next few weeks or the next month, like, what do you think you'll do with all this? Like, how do you think you'll like, what, how do you think you'll move forward? I mean, so, and that's, and that's why I think that one of the things I wanted to ask you is there for, to, to actually make this change. Because I think, I think I've, I've thought a lot about it, right. And I've gotten feedback on it and, and, and I don't, and it's funny, I don't get upset with the feedback because I've always known that I'm this way. Mm -hmm. I actually think as I've gotten older, I've, um, I've slowed down a little bit as far as, you know, I, I don't jump to conclusions as much. Right. So I might not be, um, I might just not be as type A as I usually as I used to be. Maybe that's how I say it, right? So I think I've gotten a little bit better at it. But I think, I, I, I you know, maybe do I do I do I write down when I, um, you know, show empathy and have a successful you know experience being more empathetic. I don't really know what I need to do to actually kind of go to the next step, right? I think I know it's a problem. I know I need to work on it. I have some ideas, which I, I do sometimes, right? Like sometimes I will catch myself and say, oh, Nick, this is probably happening with that person. You should feel this way, right? Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't say this or you shouldn't jump to this conclusion, right? Um, but it's still not, it's not automatic for me, right? It's almost, I still have to think to actually do, do what I think I need to do. If that yeah. makes totally um and it sounds like you're shooting all over yourself that's like one of you know one of the things we say all the time um 
so, so it, you know, it, you're, you're working really hard at it. Um, and it's really admirable. Um, and so I, I think that usually at this point, what we could do is start to talk through like different ways that could be helpful for you and, and do it in a, um, so I'm going to, I'm going to pull out and sort of like pull the, pull the, the curtain over and talk about a little bit of what we're talking about now. Cause I think it'll be helpful if we're going to help your audience learn about behavior change at this point, it's there. So um, before I go there, let me ask you like, how, how was this? And before we, we can, we can talk about sort of action planning and doing all that stuff, but I'll also, let me just level set and tell you that um, it doesn't always happen that you walk away from an interaction about behavior change with like a plan of what to do. Sometimes it's still figuring out like, well, what do I want to do? What's important to me and why and consolidating motivation. And so I'm wondering how this conversation was for you. Like, how did it feel? So, so Which is I'm, a very typical psychologist question, right? Like, yeah, well, I, <laughs> I'm open to feedback and, and I think that knowing we were going to talk about something obviously i had thought about this right and i knew this is what i wanted to talk about that i think having this conversation um i think i think it actually it's, it's really helpful and it felt good because i know i know i have to work on this right this mm -hmm. isn't a surprise to me you know this is um i've gotten the feedback at home and at work i know this is something i've always had to work on i know i can be better at and i know if i am if i do improve it it will it will absolutely help me be more successful right mm -hmm. in relationships so that's why it do, it does feel good because I think uh, I know I need to I know I need to work on it and make it better. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not doing it. I'm doing it for me, but I'm really doing it for everyone else at the same time. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, and I don't know if you noticed when we were doing when we were having a conversation, you were doing most of the work, right? Like I was just asking um, open ended questions, right? I was sort of opening yeah. the door for you to have some conversation, reflecting it back. Um, and then you give me more, right? And so you actually at some point wanted me to give you an answer and I just reflected it back, asked you again, and you gave me more. Um, in fact, that was when you said that you're, you, you're trying not to jump to conclusions, right? And so a lot of this conversation was me, me drawing it out from you because you already have it inside. You actually don't need me. You might just need me or you know your coach or someone to help like reflect it back and be a mirror for you to say like, hey, listen, you already got it. Um, you've thought about it, you have the skills, you can figure it out. And that's, you know, that process should be very validating without me giving you a ton of advice and ideas. Now, listen, I have like a few degrees on the walls and lots of ex expertise that I can bring to the table and we can collaborate. And that's, but that's a much different stance than me saying like, Hey, let me, let me take this over and tell you how to do this. Right. Um, right. So that makes sense. Uh, and that, that's one really important lesson with, behavior change is really respecting the person that's sitting in front of you that knowing that they come to the table with a lot of expertise, a lot of experience. Um, and they're really about, they have value inside them, even if they don't believe it. Um, and so it's, it's digging it out sometimes and helping them connect with that because ultimately they're going to be the one you're, you are going to be the one who's going to become more empathic. Right. So, so let me ask you this around behavior change. So I, I'm obviously open to doing this and I want to do this. Does behavior change work if someone is not open to making the change and really gotten to the point where they're like, I want to do this? So that is um, 
something. So we call that the writing reflex, a piece of like, if someone's sitting in front of you and they're like, they look like they're not going to change at all. And you're just like, I'm done. I can't do anything. If you don't want to change, I can't help you. Um, that I think that there are cases where that, that is the place, the, the, the situation, but really generally people feel ambivalent. Like they often feel two ways about a behavior, right? And so it's part of the job is to help them understand where the ambivalence lies and to make sense of it. Um, and so it, you know, I mean, I, I've dealt with in my career, most of my early research um, was in drug and alcohol addiction, right? And so I've, I've seen it all. I've treated mandated patients um, and who seemingly weren't all that interested in treatment. But my job is, I don't know, is there, I always say, is there a little chink in the armor that I can help them see and help grow that out and see? And then maybe sometimes it's like, well, maybe they don't really want to change. And then, then how does it help me to sit there and tell you how to make all these changes that you want to make? You know, I'd much rather have a relationship with you, trying to help you, maybe even help you figure out, okay, well, if now's not the right time to change, when, when might it be, right? So let's say you were like, listen, I've been thinking about this for a long time, but I, yeah, and I get the feedback, but mm, I'd be like, well, when when would you know that you needed to make the change? And you may be like, well, I'm, my wife shows up and tells me like she's out of here. Yeah, yeah. And then I would say, dude, are you waiting for that? Like, is that what you're waiting? You know, and I might like I might sort of reflect that back. Well, like, wow, I've heard that actually from um, smokers, right? People who smoke nicotine. Um, of like, hey, what are you waiting for? And they're like, well, if I got cancer, and the minute they even hear themselves like having that contemplation of oh, is that what I'm waiting for? Um, it's pretty that's, that's, that's interesting because they, they don't even realize and then they, you get them to say it and it, it almost shocks themselves. Yeah. I mean, this is why the con the conversations around behavior change are so important um, and being able to really listen um, and listen not just to respond or tell someone what to do or give them advice, but really to listen and understand. And it's... So I was like dying when you're talking about empathy, because I'm like, oh, if you if you do some of this like that, we're talking about change in general, if you're going to be more empathic, you're actually going to meet your goals. If you yeah. like some of the stuff we're talking about tonight, it's all about empathy. It's understanding where someone's coming from, how they've gotten there and then where they want to go and how do you get them there? And then how do you all those hurdles along the way? Right. Um, what what are your. Um... So for people looking to make changes, behavior changes, what what is your advice on on documentation and writing things down? And you know, and, and I think another thing that people often hear is having someone hold you accountable, right? So, you know, some sort of accountability partner. What what is what is from all of your research and your experience, how do those play into what people are trying to do? Or does it depend depend on the person? It completely depends on the person. There are lots of determinants of behavior change. And some some people really respond well to some of the social determinants of behavior change. So I'm someone who's super social. Um, I like to, so I'm, I'm in um, I'm in a small uh, WhatsApp group right now for behavior change. Um, and I, I have accountability partners. I love, like, I love that. That's important for me. Like, I don't, be, I don't like behavior change in a vacuum, but there are plenty of people who don't like that, right? They like to kind of keep their behavior change. Um, so I think you need to know yourself. But I will tell you that there's lots of research, including some of my own research, where assessment of behavior change is effective. So meaning if you're just tracking what you're doing without even trying to change it, 
you're going to change your behavior. So if you really sat down at the beginning of every day and set an intention, hey, I want to be more empathic today. And here's what I think that'll look like. And here's some opportunities I have to practice some of these behaviors that I've identified. And at the end of the day, you keep yourself accountable and say, hey, how did I do today? Oh, well, you know what? I actually... I wasn't as mindful as I wanted to be in that meeting. And now all of a sudden you're, it's a test and learn environment, right? So no different than other like test and learn environments that we, you know, we're in. Um, and I, so I'm, I'm a big proponent every, the first time I see a patient, I have a stack of journals that I let them pick a journal from so they can track if they want to on hand, or there's plenty of apps and stuff to track, um, or keep yourself accountable. So I think there, there is value in that there's evidence-based value in, in collecting some data and keeping yourself accountable. No, I, 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 and again, I think giving people the option to do it different ways, I think makes a lot of sense. So I think the last thing I'll ask um, for the audience, so, you know, how long does this usually take, right? So is, because you mentioned earlier that anything with behavior change is a process, but are you ever really done or are you always, if it's something you've wanted, you you don't do naturally, or it's not innate to you, right? It's not one of your your core strengths. Is it something that you're always going to have to work on? You know, no matter how long you do it for. So I think the short answer is yes, um, but it does become. So we're talking about habits, right? And that's why, like the the B and CBT is all about behavior, and I'm ultimately a behaviorist, right? And it's all it's all habits, and some of them are cognitive habits, by the way, right? So your thinking is a behavior, um, and so it's all about changing the habit. And the ha- when we so when you change a habit, it den- it generally does change, but then there could be like a slip or there could be a relapse back to your old habit. And again, if you're tracking and you're at least like what I call taking your own temperature or your blood, like, you know, like looking at yourself every once in a while and be like, Hey, how am I doing on this? Oh, wait a minute. I'm not exactly where I want to be. You can get right back on the path. um, As opposed to like being all the way back to baseline. And now you've got to climb the mountain all over again. Um, And so just keep yourself honest about how am I doing? And it's, it's not just behaviors you've changed. I mean, think about things that you do really well that you're not doing really well anymore because you've let yourself slip. And so it's really keeping honest with all those things about who you want to be. And I think that's the thing that people rarely stop and kind of check their values and their goals and their meaning and purpose and all of those things. Um, We just kind of go about life and put one foot in front of the other, but there, there is sort of there, what does it ladder up to? And are you doing, are you on that path? Yeah, no, I, I think that's well said. So, um, so again, thank you so much for, for walking me through that live with everyone. So it was fun to be your, your guinea pig. So let me, let me end with this, with this last question. And then again, w- this recording will be on YouTube. It'll be on the podcast and people will be able to check it out. We'll make sure we share your information as well, Michelle. If you could give people one piece of advice, um, you've had a very successful career. So one piece of advice that's helped you, you know, achieve your full potential, what would that piece of advice be for the audience? So what's that one thing or two things that you think has really helped you be so successful? Um, I think having good relationships has been, so I, I'm also, I'm high in woo, right? Like, so being like having good relationships with people and, and taking risks in getting to know people. Like when I reached out to you and, um, and it, it just, and like paying that forward and backward. Right. And so I think, I think networking is important, right? But in a genuine way, 
Um, because I think those people, you can help other people and people can help you. And if people see that you're doing it genuinely and that you really care and they get to know you, then they're, they're going to help you. And I think that's, I have people in my life who go all the way back to grammar school. Right. And I think right. relationships are so important. Um, and networking is just, it's huge and not in the schmoozy networking, right. But in the genuine getting to know people and caring about them. And, um, I think that's, I think that has been, really at the foundation of the success of my career. Um, no surprise for a psychologist, but I really think that, you know, I've utilized that beyond like the traditional like. Well, and, and it's so much easier to network now. I mean, with, with, with platforms like LinkedIn than ever yeah. before. I mean, you know, 30 years ago, you, you, you didn't have the ability to network with people all over the world, whether it be in your field or outside your field you know, just right, right at home from your computer. Right. And yep. now you, it's, it's so easy and you can just meet so many interesting people and learn about what they're doing. And, um, so, you know, that's great advice. So, so again, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Oh, making yeah. time. Super fun. Um, and, uh, you know, from, you know, I know you took time out of being with your, with your family and your practice to do this and, and share with the audience. So, um, we'll make sure we get all your information shared in the, uh, in the show notes and, uh, we'll, we'll check in again soon. To learn more about our movement, visit our website, fullpotentialmovement.com, or visit us on multiple social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.